Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall as ever. Pete, how are you? Great man. Two records in two days. What efforts we're going to to try and get everything finished by the end of the year. <laughs> as promised, we're knocking out all of these top fives and uh, the thing that we recorded yesterday should be a, a good one because we're going to be putting out the top 10 films of the decade. Uh, both the episode that we're recording today and the one we recorded yesterday will drop at about the same time, which for you guys in future time, will be uh, I'm going to say Friday to Saturday this weekend so like we usually do end of the week start of the weekend you can see both of those around that time um, yeah lots to get to on this one though we didn't want to miss like the regular episode of the show so what we're doing is a regular episode this time out so that we can have double for your completely non-existent money this week um, <laughs> Paul how are you doing man in general terms other than you know working your socks off to try and get these done yeah no all good all good I said yeah I think I agree with with you there, Pete. I think it's. I wanted to put out these more regular episodes because the back end of the year has been so heavily loaded with bigger releases, which is unusual, I think. So, um, obviously, we wanted to talk about stuff like Marriage Story, Star Wars is coming up. We'll get to that. So, yeah, we just wanted to make sure we did some some regular shows as well for you. So, yeah, absolutely. So, no, it's it's good to be back. It's good to see your face again, Pete, after just one day. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> uh, funny you should mention that, Paul. Yeah, because of course, with a normal show, what we do is we build the show around a feature. The feature for today's show is, as Paul's just mentioned. Marriage Story from director, writer Noah Baumbach. Uh, in addition to that, because we never want to give you the minimum, we always want to give you the maximum, we've also got a top five latched on for this show, which I would say is slightly at odds with our feature, because what we're going to count down is our top five <laughs> comedy films of the year 2019 so despite the fact that a google search will tell you that marriage story is uh, viably a comedy um i don't know about it's that <laughs> more on that in, in due course on the show but we've got top five comedies of 2019 before both of those things we're going to have as usual coming attractions where we preview the film's coming out over the weekend, this coming weekend, and about the time when you get the podcast. And before all of that, we're going to do popcorn movies where we review films that we've seen over the last seven days. I think for both of us, that's been quite a number of things. But today, we're going to keep it quite short, quite tight, and just do three or four between the two of us. And at the very beginning of the show, as in right now, we're going to go into the foyer and talk about film news that's affected us or come onto our radars in the last few days. Paul, it feels like a sort of slow news time right now because everyone's caught up in, you know, the trivialities of, you know, the changing government of our country or lack of change as it actually is. Uh, and, you know, the machinations of impeaching the American president. But there is still time to talk about film news. What, if anything, has cropped up on your radar recently? So this is the recently announced news that the Oscars are considering going hostless again for next year's ceremony. Um, I in, in similar to what they did last year. So in which they have different actors and actresses basically present on hosting duties and kind of swapping around a bit. Um, I think it worked quite well last year, Pete. I don't know where I don't know where you stand on this idea. Um, yeah, 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 I agree with you. I mean, of course, last year we were going to have Kevin Hart as the MC, and then some of the comments that he'd made that were, um, if I remember correctly, kind of homophobic things that he'd written on Twitter in the yeah. in the past were pulled up and given a sort of evidence of his unsuitability for the role of hosting such a prestigious. Uh, quote unquote ceremony and so he was stripped of that um, responsibility and like you were saying we had a hostless ceremony which could have been like a massive train wreck um, could have been a disaster but actually turned out to be 
something that felt like we could have been doing this, you know, the whole time or like at least every other year, you know, and now we're going to apparently or possibly get two years in a row without a definitive host. Because, I mean, we had the discussion last year, Paul, didn't we, on the show about if not Kevin Hart, then who? And this year, mm. I suppose I would I would posit to you, if not a hostless show, who? Like, is there anyone that jumps out and you think, oh, no, that guy or, or that woman or that double act or something could do the, the Oscars this year? Uh, Halen Pace, perhaps, could be, <laughs> a, could be a good contender for. <laughs> Don't know what they're up to these days, but maybe they could do the Oscars. Yep. Um, no, or joking apart, I think, I, I, I said, I think one of the reasons I prefer it hostless is it becomes more about the films and less about the ego of the person doing it. Like, it's almost like the, the Oscar show becomes, uh, like, a, people end up reviewing the Oscars host, the Oscar host performance, and it becomes about the host rather than the films itself. So in many ways, I, I prefer it. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are people that have done a good job hosting it. There's people who've done a bad job hosting it. I quite like, I quite liked it when Jim Kimmel hosted it. It was enjoyable. Um, so the, people do do a good job at it, but it just, I think it takes away the focus from what it's there, what it's there for, which is to one of the films, the filmmakers, um, and the actors and actresses, as opposed to a platform for the, someone to further their career. So I'm all for it personally, unless Hale and Pace are available, as I said. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> dropping them contemporary references. Um, yeah, I mean, like you say, man, the, the risk is that you get either a sort of self-indulgent performance in terms of the host or hosts of the show, or you get just a hosting combination or individual that just doesn't work. Maybe the jokes don't mm. go over well. Maybe they they don't take to the, the opportunity in the way that was hoped. I mean, it, it seems like, at least um, from what is being bandied about by the likes of Variety, that... Um, the option here that they're looking at is what they're calling a compromise solution where you've got essentially a team of A-list celebrities who are passing the baton, so to speak, during the night so that you've got a string of hosts rather than a host, uh, which kind of takes the pressure off any one of those being exceptionally good. If something's not working, you've got another one coming along in a moment and maybe that's a good solution for where we are right now with the Oscars yeah I think so I don't I don't think it's a bad idea at all and as I said I think I ultimately I think that maybe is the way they should do it permanently um and going forward because then you don't you said you don't have this clash of interest it, it is then it is then just a more focused and a sharper ceremony I I think and also that helps keep the running time down which you know is historically inarguably too long in places um so yeah i think a, i think a more a still more stripped back show is probably a good shout to be fair yeah kind of keeps things a bit snappier as well sometimes right yeah. you are, you just move things along at a better clip rather than some of the you know bits that whoever the writing team are put into the previous Oscar ceremonies are just sort of painful and you just feel like you're you're having to bear them you're having to go through them to get on to, it's to like the bits that, that you it's, want it's basically it's like the beginning of Graham Norton where you're just like okay oh. I really wish you wouldn't tell these jokes and just start talking to celebrities that, please like, that, that's kind of what it that's feels that's a like. sensational <laughs> reference yeah every time I watch that show I, I've got to be honest I fast forward through the pre-written <laughs> sort of political edge monologue that has no edge uh, just to get to the bit where the guests are sitting down on the couch and the actual show is starting so yeah I'm totally with you about that and maybe maybe you found your guy though maybe Graham Norton can get the Oscar for 2020 <laughs> yeah maybe yeah maybe yeah I mean s 
something needs to be done quickly. They need to make this decision, which makes me feel more that they're probably going to go along these lines that are being you know banded about now because the Oscars is a little bit earlier this year. It's actually February 9th. So we've got this slightly okay. truncated Oscars uh, season or period. And, um, you know, it's going to be the end of January before we know it. You know, it's, it's what, six weeks away until the actually actual ceremony itself, probably. So, uh, yeah, they need to get their ducks in a row. And it seems like that row is going to be comprised of A-list celebrity ducks, uh, each taking their turn at sort of swimming in the Oscars water. So, yeah, hopefully it just won't be boring. And hopefully we won't feel like too angry about all the injustices of, you know, nominations and awards in due course. But we'll get to that as we always do when the season kicks into high gear. Before then, we've got something else to talk about, which is this um, story that I found through uh, IndieWire. And IndieWire this week, uh, Tom Brueggemann has written a story basically um, around the idea or notion that films can be entirely critic proof with the specific examples uh, or a possible prediction of what's going to happen with the examples of Star Wars Rise of Skywalker which is of course opening this week and then Cats which has got some scathing a pretty catty early reviews and the fact that on the one hand you've got this huge behemoth Disney property in Star Wars and on the other hand you've got this universal property in Cats and both of them could potentially make massive bank at the box office even though some of the early Star Wars reviews are a bit middling I think it's fair to say I mean I, I don't claim to be an expert on all the things that have been written so far and the Cats reviews have been horrendous um, where do you sample do you think that in 2019 it is true that movies can be released that are basically bulletproof when it comes to critical response uh, yes and no. I th- I'd say it, last year I probably would have said yes. I think, and then Solo came out, um, the Star Wars spin-off project, and that is the first first um, film to make a loss or not do not live up to box office expectations by quite a long way. Um, starting with Star Wars, if I may, because it's quite close to my heart. Disney blamed the Disney said, "Oh, there's too many Star Wars films. Blah 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 blah. There's too many. We'll slow down the release pace." people are sick of Star Wars. I don't believe that to be the case. I genuinely believe that it was a backlash because a lot of... I still have not met someone, genuinely not met someone, like a, a seasoned Star Wars fan, so a nerd for, for want of a better description, that's fine, I'll take it, um, that actually liked The Last Jedi. Um, so I genuinely believe that uh, that is a response to the the fans receiving of that film because weirdly enough, The Last Jedi was actually, for the most part, very, very well reviewed. Um I don't believe them. I don't agree with those reviews in the slightest. Um, but it was very, very reviewed. It did make a lot of money at the box office. And then the next Star Wars film, film didn't. Now, I don't. I genuinely don't think it's because there's too many Star Wars films. Because Star Wars fans will lap up anything you put in front of them with the Star Wars name on it to, to an extent. Um, so that makes me think maybe it's not so much that they are critically proof. And I believe from what I was reading the other day is that the predictions, Disney's predictions or expectations for Star Wars the last uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker have been significantly lower than previous box office um, expectations for Star Wars films. So that should be interesting. Um, I'll be interested to see where it goes. As to whether Star Wars is critic proof or not, it, I mean, it's not going to lose money in, in all honesty. Um, as for Cats... Um, that has got a very established fan base for the musical. Um, um, it's not something I've seen myself. <coughs> Sorry, I'm coughing here. Pete, pick up for me here. What about cats? 
Oh yes, so uh, jumping jumping in with the the hairball that you're going through at the moment. Um, I just wanted to actually, it's it's, it's useful this because I wanted to jump in on the Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker thing uh, to the extent that I guess that movie could have a little bit of a bump given the fact that it's sort of the end of a cycle, right? Being that this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul. I'm sure you will, but uh, this is number nine. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's number nine. So it sort of brings to to an end the latest trilogy and so i guess there's something about that i mean i say that but then at the same time if you've been to the first two or the previous two movies you're locked in it's a locked in fan base and to be fair if you've if you've been on board you know since the um the movies were were uh, brought back to our screens with like episodes one, two, and three, and you've stuck with it through those and onwards. Then it's probably going to take quite a lot for you not to go and see the new Star Wars movie, and that you know that kind of does lock in a guaranteed sizable box office. But you were sa- well, yeah, I think they've yeah, sorry, oh, but on. you were saying that the expectations are maybe slightly lower than may normally be the case. Yeah, that's what I've been reading, um, and maybe it's because of fan backlash from Last Jedi. I don't know. Also, Disney have cleverly spun this to be um, whether you agree with this or not is another matter. Cleverly spun this to be the end of all nine films rather than the end of this trilogy as yeah, well. Sure. So they're saying the whole they represents the whole Skywalker saga. So obviously, someone in this is a Skywalker at some point. I mean, Luke appears as a Force ghost, but there's strong rumours about Ray's parentage or possible, or um, Kylo Ren's obviously Leia's son and that kind of thing. So, yeah, so, I mean, I think that's a very clever way to spin it. It's the end of nine films. I don't necessarily agree with that in terms of how loosely they seem to be related in parts, um, but I think it's a good way to spin it, and I think you're right. I think that would draw a lot of people in. And as you've said, <clears throat> if you've seen the other two, you're very unlikely not to go and see this one, whatever you thought of the one before it. So Yeah, so I've got numbers for you in front of me, Paul. We've got um, 2015 was The Force Awakens when Disney took over the property, 248 million uh, opening at the box office. Then you've got Last Jedi in 2017, 220 million, so slightly down. Um, then you've got Rogue One in, uh, oh, sorry, Rogue One being an offshoot, uh, so in 2016 rather yeah. than later than 17. Uh, Rogue One at 155 million, a little bit lower than those two, and Solo at 84 million. So the highest grossing opening of any of those was The Force Awakens when Disney first bought the property and, and brought it back to screens. But do you think then from just, you know, I guess slightly disregarding the the predictions and prognostications that you're talking about, do you imagine that this latest movie is going to be a high-performing instalment in the Star Wars universe of, of movies, or do you expect slightly uh, slightly lower? I think it's going to take slightly lower than, than expectations, to be honest. I mean, it, I think you're going to get your hardcore people that go out and see it um, like immediately, without a shadow of a doubt, but then... Um, I think it's fair to say that there was a certain generation of Star Wars fan. I think we had um, Zig Bingham on earlier in the year, and he was saying that basically Star Wars is dead to him and he loves the original trilogy. Um, A lot of people don't like the direction the films have gone in. Um, And I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of older sort of, well, maybe not necessarily older Star Wars fans, but there's a lot of Star Wars fans that kind of walked away from it um, because they don't like where it's gone. And fair play to them. If they don't want to watch it, don't watch it. You know, more more power to them. So I think, yeah, I think this, but then you've got the the new fans that have come up through, then this is now Star Wars for them. So yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting place to be for the franchise, to be fair. What I think will be more interesting for me is what, what they do with the franchise next, because I'm kind of a bit bored of Skywalkers, in all honesty. They've got a massive, massive universe that they could explore, um, that they've tried to do in The Mandalorian, tried to do a bit with Solo, that I think is arguably more interesting than kind of rehashing old 
Brown, but we shall see. I haven't seen Rise of Skywalker yet. I'm going tomorrow. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah. and along with this huge new release, you've also got The Mandalorian to kind of tide you over. Is that is that ongoing, that series? Yeah, The Mandalorian, I think, is uh, just an episode six, five or six, I think, if I remember rightly. Right. Um, it's and all do right. we know how many episodes it looks, it looks nice. How many episodes in the entire run? I think there's nine. I might be wrong. There's nine or ten, I think. Okay, so, so there's a little bit more to, for fans to get the teeth into before you have to yeah. get desperate for the next release at the cinema, at least, or, or on the Disney yeah, platform. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, I think we'll leave this for now and maybe come back to it when we've got some more information. And also, to be fair, when we've seen both of the films, which will be you know next week, um, what a Christmas present to be able to see Cats. Uh, but before yeah. <laughs> we go any further, we need to take a little break and we will come back right after the break with a section of the show that we call Popcorn Movies right after this. So yeah, Popcorn Movies is the section of the show where we talk about films that we've seen over the past seven days. They can be any age, new releases, old releases, uh, new films, old films, animations, documentaries, any any films at all really that we've seen. Um, so uh, I think there's a bit of crossover this week, which is normally more entertaining for us to talk about um, because I'm very excited, Pete, to talk to you on uh, on air about the new Michael Bay release that for some reason I decided to watch. Um, this is Six Underground, which is a Netflix exclusive, I believe. Yeah. Um, so directed by Michael Bay, starring Ryan Reynolds, Melanie Laurent, Manuel Garcia, Rufo, uh, Rufo. Um, yeah, it's the tagline for this, well, if there's a tagline for this, is meet a new kind of action hero, six untraceable agents, totally off the grid. They've buried their past so they can change the future. So Ryan Reynolds, I believe, is a billionaire. He, well, is a billionaire who fakes his own death and seems to set up this group of badasses combating all kind of nasty people. I think is probably the best way to set this one up. Um, Pete, roll in with me. What did you? We've seen this as well. We'll take this one together. Yeah, for sure. Although I, I would contend that the strap line for this one really is the one that hits the poster, which is that they say no one can save the world, meet <laughs> no one, which is sort of like I get it, I get what you've gone for, but it sort of sets you up for the disappointing blamange that this thing is. But uh, yeah, you, you said at the outset, Paul, who this is brought to you by being you know Michael Bay, his writers, pair of writers, and then you know a, a clutch of sort of stars or, or semi well known actors but it's also brought to us by a string of commercial partners i've not seen this year a more egregiously product placed movie uh, you know in, in whether it's streaming at the cinema or anywhere else this is unreal from that point of view to the extent that the opening of the movie which is a large portion of what is in the trailer when we first saw the trailer i believed it to be some kind of either an advert for a car or an advert for the holiday destination of Italy. I think they're in Rome at the time. Um, and then it was only when it got to an end and I realised it's Ryan Reynolds not doing his commercial work per se, although you could argue this is kind of that anyway, uh, but actually doing some sort of cinematic thing that, oh, this is this is Michael Bay. Um, yeah, uh, where, where to start? I mean, what's the last Michael Bay that we had? I guess it was the trans last Transformers instalment, right? I think it was, yeah, unless he's done something... Unless he's done something since then, I can't. I, know, I can't think. I mean, he's he did that um, the the Secret Soldiers of Benghazi thing. That I still haven't seen. I can't. Oh, thirty six hours, or is it something like that? Yeah, I, I still. Secret Soldiers I, of Benghazi, but yeah. I mean, I've not, either not seen it or I've seen it and it's evaporated in my mind because it was not significant. <laughs> but I think it was because it was dealing with at the time. I I knew a couple of guys who came uh, or come from Benghazi, and I just thought I can't deal with Michael Bay and like 
like actual issues um it seems offensive on its face but then yeah this thing so we've got like generic story six people who you know uh, uh, they're ghosts paul they're ghosts uh they're ghosts and they all fake their own death and it's all organized and they're an underground group who convene very much in a similar way to a certain massive summer tentpole franchise this movie rips off fast and furious like you know like its (laughs) life depends on it from meeting in a sort of underground garagey locale to having a group of sort of disparate people brought together by their jobs that they have to do to the fast cars to the quick cutting i mean talk about that for a second this thing is edited as if the person has just done so much mdma or something before they went into the editing <laughs> suite what has happened i mean it made, it made me for i think in the first 15 minutes i thought it was going to be physically sick like i mean i think like, I mean, it's some, it's Michael Bay's trademark, I guess, is snappy editing and this this kind of this kind of action filmmaking. But the problem with it here is it's too much. I think every time I watch a Michael Bay film, I think, oh, maybe this will be The Rock again because The Rock was good. Everyone likes The Rock. You can't argue it. It's a great action film. So I was like, maybe this will be that. Untethered from Transformers, this could be all right. But as soon as it starts, it's just this is too much Michael Bay. Like, and uh, I just, it's. I think we talked about this off air. It's just it's this Netflix thing where uh, Michael Bay goes to or Netflix approaches Michael Bay, and Michael Bay says, "Yeah, but I'm, I don't. I want complete creative control." And they give him completely creative control. And if you give Michael Bay completely unfettered creative control, you get this film, Pete. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like. Um you know absolute power sorry power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely i mean this is absolutely corrupted to its core because you've got a filmmaker who already is like tugging at the leash of like decency and constraint in everything that he does i mean famously he said that his style of framing is called or what he likes to call fucking the frame and then here it's like that but taken even further and into directions even more vomit inducing as you were saying and sort of uh, kind of repellent for me as well i mean everything in it is like um that that sound of someone going for you know like look at her ass look at this car look at the architecture look at the crash look at the blood like every section and it just doesn't let up to the point where i'm like can we just can we just slow down for a second? Can we allow some characters to develop? Can we have a couple of conversations maybe that aren't just excuses to product place, which is what... And then just very, very weird humour that he seems to have... That he seems to, he's just got this very odd sense of humour that just isn't funny at all. Like there's the, the scene at the beginning in the funeral where they try and make comedy out of a, the funeral and it's just like... This doesn't work and every time you know every time someone quips it just falls right. flat and then there's another quip and it falls flat and it's just the film's just it's just mean-spirited again in, in places which i've always found him to be a very mean-spirited director i, I don't understand why why people allow him to make films. right and 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 he said you know the quips don't work and and i was talking about it being derivative i mean ryan reynolds is playing deadpool in this movie Pretty yeah. much. I mean, the way he delivers his lines, he might as well, you know, he's just taking time out off the set of the last Deadpool movie and just staying in character and knocking out an action movie. And like, I don't mind the guy. I've I've enjoyed some Ryan Reynolds film, Ryan Reynolds films quite a lot. But like here, I just I find him so grating. I mean, you know, those Deadpool movies are written by people who at least to some degree uh, can write you know snappy lines and lines that will make you chuckle or like references and meta stuff that's kind of vaguely clever here it's it's none of that it's just everything turned up to 11 
and you got a headache and you feel ill. And to be honest, <laughs> when I was watching it, I started um, reading around a little bit about Michael Bay. And like, there's a sort of proclamation on his, uh, I guess, his Wikipedia about Michael Bay has never married. Uh, whatever he is, 49 now. No one has to marry. That's not the point. But there's something in me that kind of feels that Michael Bay is an incredibly sad man. And and <laughs> and, and something about the 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 sort of idea of him makes me feel sad about like late capitalism and just you know the parts of the world and what our world has become because this man is on has got a platform like you were saying where netflix will just chuck money at him as will lavazza coffee and whatever other sponsors they've got throughout this thing and and allow him to to fuck about but in a way like words that you were using like you know um you said like uh, offensive or um, mean spirited. Yeah, you know yeah. you've given you've given all this money and all these resources to a sort of man child who is not only reckless, who is not only kind of boring and uncreative, but is also mean spirited and also punches down and also is really leery and sexist and horrible. And so, yeah, absolutely, uh, give me a banger of an action movie. We've talked about it lots on this show. I've loved the last Fast and Furious movies, you know, in varying degrees, but I've kind of loved them. When they come around, I'm like, yeah, I'll strap in in the cinema and get that adrenaline directed directly into my veins. And I got, I, di- I don't think my pulse even vaguely quickened for a moment. No, from the movie. from the opening moments, I was just like, okay, this could be exciting. Like it looks, it looks very pretty in four K. Netflix is putting out in four K. It looks very pretty. It looks to me more like like a demo content for a like a very bright Samsung TV than it does an actual film in places. Yeah. Um, so it looks pretty, and I thought, you know what? Maybe the set pieces will be moderately exciting. I think that's kind of what I tuned into. It was like this will be at best, like at worst, this will be throwaway fun. But it's just irritating from the moment it starts, and there is no excitement to be had at all. I sat there and I just felt nothing. Just felt absolutely nothing throughout this. Yeah, and and even and even I know we have differing views, but early on, I was like, oh, Dave Franco's signed on to this. That's something for me to cling on to. Oh, I was so misguided, yeah. Paul. I was so misguided. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can find out for yourselves. It's on Netflix at the moment. Uh, it, two hours and seven minutes that you'll never get back. Uh, you, I would say couple this with, um, uh, you know, what, a couple of anodin um, and uh, a glass of water. Yeah, I think that's a fair shout, yeah. Uh, right, well, that was more of a feature review than a popcorn review, but hey-ho, I enjoyed that chat about Six Underground. Uh, Pete, your go. What have you got next? Um, so, yeah, I can't promise that I'm going to be uh, any more enthused, maybe a bit less animated about the next one. Uh, I went to the cinema to catch Black Christmas, Black Christmas, a remake of a remake that is uh, originally a fairly beloved uh, sort of dark Christmas horror movie. This time, uh, writer-director Sophia Takal takes the reins, not someone I know a lot about. And I guess the biggest name in the cast is uh, Imogen Poots, although I should say Carrie Elwes is in this as well. Uh, so maybe legacy-wise, a, a bigger name. Um, yeah, we've got a group of female students stalked by a stranger during the Christmas break. They're on a college campus and a sort of shadowy conspiracy emerges of uh, fraternal... Uh, what do they call those? 
um, when people join a fraternity, there's um, a word for yeah. that, isn't there? Pledges, maybe? Something else. Pledge, pledges, pledges, yeah. Pledges. yeah. A fraternity yeah. pledges who are doing uh, malevolent things behind big closed oak doors, uh, which seem to revolve around some mysterious sticky substance pouring from the eyes of the college's forefather whose sort of bust has been um, taken off the campus and placed in a particular fraternity. I barely recognise the um, black, the version of Black Christmas that I like in this movie because it was so badly made that, like, there were even sequences in the movie. You know, Paul, we've talked about before when you watch something and you suddenly start having strong opinions about things like editing, even though you would yeah. admit that you're nothing like an expert when it comes to editing or sound design or technical fields where you'd have to train for a long time to really know what you're talking about. But when it's so egregiously bad, all of us can become kind of experts because we can see what is glaringly bad in something glaringly bad. So there is a sequence in this movie where uh, I won't say exactly what's happening, but the shots that are connected together make the storytelling completely incoherent. An event happens from a particular angle, then we <laughs> wow. cut to the next sequence, and it's almost as if what's just happened has been forgotten about. I, I was a bit a bit blown away by like how cack handed of a, of a work of this story. This was uh, image and poots is fine um, in it. And I guess I've, I've kind of liked her in, in other places. Carrie Elwes has fun when he does stuff like this. Um, it's all very odd and it's all a bit like icky as well, because the thing that underpins uh, Imogen Poot's story is that she's been essentially date raped and is traumatised by what happened to her. And then the way that the story deals with that event and the kind of final play out and kind of supposed revenge is, is very odd and a little uncomfortable. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, save, you know, all those comments, I, I most importantly want to say is it's a badly made film. It's a badly made film. It's, it feels like a film that came very close to just being scrapped. And, and in the end, it's, okay. it's found its way to the cinema. And, and it's a shame because I was hoping for something quite a lot better. And I mean, it's got a 50 on Metacritic right now. And I feel that's pretty generous. I think this is going to be banging on the door for a place on my top five or 10 worst films of the year, if I'm honest. Okay, along with 600. Yeah, you're right. Two in a week. <laughs> yeah. um, what else have you got, man? Uh, so on your recommendation, I caught up with I Lost My Body, the uh, French animation about uh, a hand a hand who is trying to uh, get back to its owner. Um, yeah, I, was, I pretty much co-signed on everything you said about it, Pete. I thought it was um fantastically well put together story. I thought the animation was, was very, very nice. Um, I don't think he... I think the 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 balance between telling the two stories so it tells the story of the boy who lost his hand and ultimately leads up to how he lost his hand and then juxtaposed is the hand trying to find its owner after the after after it's been separated from the body so no i yeah i thought it was a fantastic piece of work a really really strong film um very very heartfelt never really overwrought which this kind of thing could have been um and i just yeah incredibly well written incredibly well animated and i and i really liked it so thanks for the recommendation so yeah um i won't say much more than that about it because you covered it pretty well um, nice. last i think it was last week but yeah really. well I, i'm just glad that we managed to get one really positive review into this section yeah. then of, of popcorn movies <laughs> yeah. of the week because it is that time of year where we should all be sort of jolly and merry i guess if we possibly can be uh is that 
you done for this week, Paul? That is me done for this week, yes. I will watch more in the next week because I've got some time off. So Cool. In that case, we will bounce out for a short break and we will be right back with the section of the show called Coming Attractions right after this. Right, so yeah, coming attractions where we talk about, briefly preview uh, some of the films that are coming out this week at the cinema. Uh, Pete, throw them at me. Well, first of all, Paul, you might not have heard about this one. It's kind of flown under the radar. Uh, It's a a movie called Star Wars, uh, The Rise of Skywalker, or Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, the original title here. Um, I don't really need to tell you anything about this movie that you couldn't already tell me, to be entirely fair. But... um, yeah, expectations high from the fan base, given that this, as you mentioned earlier on in the show, is the ninth movie and sort of a, a capstone on those nine movies, uh, at least in, as far as the marketing department would have us believe. J.J. Uh, Abrams in the director's chair here, and all the regulars are in position for another delve into the Star Wars universe. Excitement levels, Paul, anticipation levels, because I know you haven't seen it yet, on a scale of sort of zero, no interest, to ten, like your head's about to explode, where are you? Seven. Okay. Which for a Star Wars film for me is unusual, but I just think it's got so much work to do narratively because for me, The Last Jedi just wrote itself into a complete dead end. Um, it didn't feel like the middle part of a trilogy in the slightest. So, um, And from what the little I have read about Rise of Skywalker is that it's very, very plot heavy in the first half and they try and squeeze a shitload of stuff in to try and make the film work and make the film work as a closer to the trilogy. So I'm moderately wary on this. I've not, as I said, I don't massively love all of the character all of these new characters if i'm honest um i'm kind of more excited about what they do net what they do after this that being said it's star wars um it's going i think the set pieces will be nothing short of spectacular i think it will look absolutely great on the big screen and i've no doubt the lightsaber jewels will be some nothing short of incredible so yeah we're we excited but but wary nonetheless did you see the interview recently with daisy ridley where she was asked about whether her privileged upbringing had benefited her acting career Yes. Yeah. It's not the question to ask, I think, is what they've learned there. Uh, But but apparently in Daisy Ridley's mind, her upbringing was quite similar to that of John Boyega, which I would question. Um, I would disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Second, we have one that will launch on Netflix exclusively, exclusively, excuse me, I believe, although here on the IMDb, it says in theatres tomorrow. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a limited cinematic run as well. But anyway, the the name of the movie I'm talking about is The Two Popes from uh, blindness director Fernando Moreas. This one starring the likes of Jonathan Price, Anthony Hopkins and Juan Minahuin. Behind Vatican walls, the conservative Pope Benedict and the liberal future Pope Francis must find common ground to forge a new path for the Catholic Church. 75 on the Metacritic scale at this point in time, Paul. Where do you stand? Where are your expectations for this one? I mean, you don't don't need to give me a number. I'm not going to make that like a new feature. But but where do you stand on this thing? Uh, I'm quite excited for this actually. I think it, I was reading that on the. I think it did the festival circuit, and I think it took a lot of people by surprise. I don't think anyone. I think people kind of expected it to be this kind of average, worthy drama, and I think a lot of people were pleasantly surprised by it in terms of. I mean, it's a, it's it's a it's a strong cast. It's a strong director. I still haven't caught up with blindness. I need to see blindness as we were talking about off air, but I really like Muriel's previous work, so I think he's a cracking director. So no, I'm quietly confident that this will be this will be very good. So yeah, and it will probably look lovely. I, I would expect yes. as well and and maybe be one of the yeah slightly superior netflix releases of recent times i'm just looking at the writer for this one um wrote the screenplay of the theory of everything 
um, amongst other things. So yeah, re- reasons to be hopeful, I think, on in that case. I mean, I, I guess there is a part of me that kind of balks at the idea of being really enthusiastic about a thing that's going to be a fairly slow-moving study of a religious institution yeah. that I don't care about that much. But I'll reserve judgment until after we've had a chance to see it. Now, one where, to be honest with you, I'm not really going to reserve judgment. I think it is going to be an absolute disaster. Uh, the next one <laughs> coming attraction for this week is Cats. Um, Cats, directed by Tom Hooper, who loves a bit of... Uh, lavish theatrical musical production and um obviously this one based on the incredibly popular you mentioned earlier incredibly popular stage show starring amongst others uh, Idris Elba Idris Elba and Taylor Swift which is the the name that's getting all the headlines right now i mean paul if this was like any musical film first of all would you be excited about it uh, yeah I've, I've kind of I've warmed to musicals over the past few years I think as I get a bit older my heart has cracked somewhat so I yeah I used to I used to kind of I used to be like no not watching a musical I take nothing from those uh, and yeah in recent years I have been more more inclined towards them so yeah I would have given I would have given it a go um what the fuck they were thinking doing these things with CGI instead of just putting people in cat suits is absolutely beyond me though I, I don't understand <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the CGI fur seems to be a big talking point. Um, that and the fact that, that it seems far too sort of eroticized for a, what is it, U or PG? It's yeah. a U, yeah. Uh, yeah. Movie, or, or more than it has any right to be anyway. I mean, are cats inherently sexy? Who knows? That and more questions will be answered. <laughs> that's, that's, on, that's on a future yeah, show. Yeah, <laughs> on a future show. So, um, yeah, and, and like you, Paul, I think my heart's cracked a little bit when it comes to musicals to the extent that a couple of years ago when we did our traditional January 1st movie watching outing um, my wife and I we go to see two or three films in the day on January 1st each year and having recently at that point seen Manchester by the Sea the shot of uh, Michelle Williams in The Greatest Showman uh, hanging up laundry just broke me in half so yeah I mean maybe there's hope for cats yeah although I I don't hold out too much Uh, I also don't hold out a load of hope for the last one for this week's coming attractions this one The Courier Uh, The Courier on I would imagine limited release just judging by the fact that the Metascore currently sits, Paul, at a rather astonishing 15 out of a possible 100. I think that's, 100. that's possibly the low, one of the lowest Metascores I've, I've seen. I don't know. If, if there's any lower, then, then tell us. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but... sort of pulling power star-wise, you've got Olga Kurilenko and you've got Gary Oldman, uh, Oldman, sorry, I should say, in leading roles here. Uh, this one, a courier in London discovers that one of the packages she's transporting is a bomb. So that'll be Olga on a motorbike a lot of the time. Uh, I mean, it's hard to ask the question with a straight face. Are you hotly anticipating a movie that has a 15 on Metacritic? (laughs) But is there anything about anything I've just said that gives you any hope that the critics have got this wrong? Old girl on a motorbike? That's that's the only thing. That's that's all all this has got. Give give this to Michael Bay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) just turned into Michael Bay. Uh, No, I mean... Gary Oldman, I, sometimes sometimes he's very good. Other times, I think, what the fuck is he doing in in certain films? This this is what I would describe as a patio film. Pete is where he's just like, oh, I need a new patio. I best make a film quickly. Uh, and this, I imagine, is that film for him. Yeah, d- the director's glittering resume includes the likes of The Rise of the Craze, or. Uh... <laughs> American Romance Rise of the Foot Soldier 3 <laughs> directed. Okay. 
Jeez. Yeah, I don't know if that's even getting to the cinema. That that might be straight to the the bargain digital bin of Amazon Prime in like a. a it'd be in Morrison's. It'd be it'd be in Mor- brand new on the brand new release shelf in Morrison's. Number one in the Morrison's DVD chart. You guarantee Indeed. it. Indeed. Well, let's talk about something way better than the Courier. We're going to be back in just a moment with a big old section of our show that we always call features. And this week we have one feature, and that feature is the latest from writer director Noah Baumbach. It is Marriage Story, and we'll talk about it after this. So this is Marriage Story, as Pete mentioned before the break, directed and written by Noah Baumbach, um, starring Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson as a married couple um, going through a divorce, I think is the... Uh, so maybe this should have been called Divorce Story, but hey-ho. Uh, Pete, set this one up a bit a bit with a bit more depth for, for everyone at home. Well, I think that was a good setup, to be honest. It should be called yeah. Divorce Story. <laughs> yeah, uh, you've got a couple here. Um, the, the man in the couple, obviously, played by Adam Driver, and we've got Scarlett Johansson as his partner. At the outset of the movie they're working together collaborating in a theatre company Uh, she's an actress he's the director it seems familiar to people who remember Adam Driver from way back treading the boards in uh, Girls when he used to put on little dramatic performances Uh, at this point yes he's come to a position in his life where he's directing his own wife in a series of shows for his theatre company but we learn right away that things aren't right between us between them in fact the movie opens up with the two of them reading letters that are that are written about the things that they love about the other um and this becomes a sort of uh callback later in the film that shows us how far they've come from this point of deciding that maybe the marriage that they have built isn't going to last any longer she wants different things she maybe wants to be somewhere else he single-mindedly is focusing his time and energy on his theatrical endeavors and his directing career and something's got to give and the thing that's going to give it seems is this marriage before we get into our thoughts on the film here's a little clip my, my work is here now. My family's here. And I agreed to put Henry in school here because your show went to series. I did that knowing that when you were done shooting, he would come back to New York. Honey, we never said that. That may have been your assumption, but we never expressly said that. We did say it. When did we say it? I don't know. When? We said it, but we said it. I thought... We said it at the time on the phone. Honey, let me finish. Sorry, I keep saying that. I thought that if... Henry was happy here, and my show continued that we might do L.A. for a while. I was not privy to that thought process. The only reason we didn't live here is because you can't imagine desires other than your own, unless they're forced on you. Okay, you wish you hadn't married me, you wish you had a different life, but this is what happened. So Noah Baumbach, I think it's fair to say, is a director that you're more familiar with than me, Pete. And there's been a lot talked about whether this is being based around his own marriage or not, is my understanding. Um, do, do, can you shed any more light on that? Or? Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I, yeah, I don't. He's not a, a mate, but um, from what I no. from what <laughs> I sorry, gather, yeah. <laughs> from what I gather, uh, Baumbach's marriage was to, uh, I believe, like an actress or actress producer, and it broke down. And it's Jennifer Jason Lee, wasn't it? If I remember rightly. Did Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh yeah, I think you might be right about it that. It was Jennifer Jason Lee was married yeah, to. Yeah, I compl- yeah, seems like I know him. Yeah, compl- completely <laughs> yes, forgot about yeah. that when I was watching the movie as yeah. well. Okay, Jennifer Jason Lee, we know who that is. Yeah, and then um, 
not only that, but his sort of burgeoning relationship with Greta Gerwig, of course, was a young actress who came into his circle and ended up being a sort of um, protege of his and then uh, romantically involved with him. And now I think they're married. They've got a child. Um, that's the new relationship that he's he's in at this time. Uh, and you see in this movie that Adam Driver's character not only is separated and, and potentially later getting divorced from Scarlett Johansson's character, but also that he has something of an interest it seems like at least a lukewarm interest in a young member of the theatre group that isn't his actual wife so yeah it seems like there are clear sort of parallels um it's a bit like when we were you know picking the bones of uh, the Darren Aronofsky film Mother for like how it might connect to the relationships that he'd been in with sort of Rachel yeah. Weisz and, and afterwards but um yeah I mean it it I guess it gives you something to um get your teeth into if you're interested in sort of what goes into the process of making a film like this but I think it's fair to say that to get this thing started that what we have by and large is a fairly tender telling of events that are in anyone's life awful and dispiriting and exhausting and I think what Baumbach does really well often is um sort of gently probing at the relationships that interconnect people like I'm thinking about something like the Meyerowitz stories that I liked so much a couple of years ago and the way that things that could be played for sort of a histrionics tend to be a little bit more tender a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more developed with someone as intelligent as Baumbach in the director's chair so I would start with that I think that it's not, if you think you're going to Marriage Story and you're going to get two people screaming at each other for sort of an hour and a half or two hours, it's very not, very much not that film. No, I, I completely agree with that. And I completely agree with your point that, yeah, there's no, there's no histrionics here. And I think it, it work, it's all the better for it, in all honesty. I think it's, it's, it's a lot more measured than you perhaps expect it to be. And I think he makes a point when in the writing, and I don't know whether this, I'll be interested to see your take on this. And I think he's, He's very careful in the writing to try not to attribute the blame to either character for the breakdown of their marriage, which I liked. I think it was quite even-handed, despite the fact that there is possibility that Adam Driver's character has slept with someone else in his theatre company. Um, I still think it, it was quite an even-handed portrayal of both characters, and I think that worked. That made the film... Um, I could relate to the film more, I think, than than another director or another writer might have tried to pin the blame on one particular character or the other. So I, I like that aspect of it. Yeah, well, picking up on that, I mean, I guess, I, I don't even know if this is necessarily a criticism. It's something I talked about with my wife after we watched it yesterday, but um, th I guess you could get the impression that Baumbach's gone for a sort of 50-50 telling of both sides of the coin when it comes to, you know, how the man sees it and how the woman sees it. Of course, Baumbach can't help the fact that he is a man and he is also the man who got divorced in his own life and that's obviously what he's um, mined for inspiration here. The mm. film is two thirds, I would say, if not three quarters, the perspective and take of the Adam Driver character as opposed to the Scarlett Johansson character. I mean, Scarlett Johansson's character in this movie, as much as I think that it's a strong performance and as much as I think some scenes are quite quite touching and quite powerful, uh, she is reduced largely to being... Um, she has really one issue, which is she wants her own... Um, like independence to choose which is nothing minor it's huge but uh in terms of how much we get in the developing life of this woman i would say 
maybe it felt like a slight weakness for me that that it was very lopsidedly giving us the story of this guy. But then, you know, he's got every right to tell the story from that perspective. Mm, that's an interesting point. Not something I picked up on. In all honesty, I thought it was. I thought it was. It was well balanced. The more now you've said it, yeah, I can kind of. I think I kind of see where you're coming from. Um, to move on to the performances, though, I think that is definitely one of the film's strengths here. I think Adam Driver has always been a very talented actor. Scarlett Hansen depends what she's in, but I think both of them shine here. Like I think it's it's two probably two of the strongest performances of the year. Um, and there are there's certain scenes. There's certain uh, the there's one particular scene where they do have a fight and they are shouting and screaming at each other, which I think is it's good that that is underplayed and only used. I think once is that yeah is that correct? Yeah, they only really have a sh- yeah they only really have a a blazing row once. And I'll be honest, that had me in tears. So that for me was was an incredibly effective use of that of that of that argument, and it has a little more power to it. And I think, yeah, credit to Noah Baumbach for the writing. I think a lot of the dialogue was very very natural, um, never overplayed, never overplayed what could have been very overly emotive material. Um, and when he does do it, it worked incredibly well. As I said, I was in bits. It was in bits in that argument, and it was in bits at the end as well. So yeah, and so you weren't pulled out of the uh, out of that emotion by the fact that he kind of punches funny. <laughs> did you notice uh yeah Yeah. you know i I joke because of course punched a wall i hasten to add not scarlett johansson i want to add absolutely the case yeah yeah. absolutely the case and and hilariously it's like a drywall that just gives way like paper yeah um yeah we you know some of us have been there i guess but um yeah I, i was going to say that uh interestingly it's a adam driver starring domestic drama where a one particular awful event happens whilst adam driver's in his domestic environment because i'm i was thinking of um when i can I, is it a spoiler to say the thing that happens with the knife uh well it, we've issued a spoiler warning so go ahead <laughs> well I, I don't know that in a film that's about the disintegration of a marriage i don't know that it necessarily is a spoiler but adam driver's character is being uh, assessed because what happens as this thing gets increasingly acrimonious is that um it's all kind of kicked into high gear by johansson's character hiring a lawyer a kind of crack eagle of a lawyer played by laura dern an actress that we like on the show who is quite, brilliant, quite who is brilliant in and this. yeah it, who is brilliant in this she's basically (laughs) transplanted from uh, Big Little Lies. Her character from that show comes onto the set of this movie and is sort of all pantsuits and sort of power power talk and stuff. But um, yeah, so she starts to kind of swing for the fences when it comes to getting the best for her client, at which point Driver's character also has to lawyer up and they kind of go head to head in scrapping over the ins and outs of finances and who contributed what and for how long and how much impact that had on the relationship and success and so on and so forth and and we see in the movie kind of that we've got this relationship which although it's come to seemingly its end still has some tenderness still has some love they, they even like make each other laugh a little bit occasionally which I, I thought was a, a strength of the screenplay that it isn't all a uh, bitter acrimonious conversation and argument you've actually got the idea that these are people who really cared for each other, which is what, you know, the end of a marriage is going to be anyway. Um, But one of the things, and I think a standout sequence in the movie, is that uh, Adam Driver's character has to be assessed by a woman who needs to judge whether he is fit to have custody or equal or part custody of their young boy. And um, obviously in any divorce, you're going to have complications, but when children are involved, so much more so. And he manages not only to do a pretty terrible 
admirable job of hosting a woman who's really weird, by the way. Uh, yeah, just yeah, truly bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> or, or, almost like has no social sort of awareness about her at all and is very deadpan. And he, he then manages to, um, just as she's about to leave, inadvertently cut himself open with a knife and um, then almost bleed out on his kitchen floor. And it reminded me of the bad thing, and I won't talk about this one, but the bad thing that happens to him in Patterson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, just this guy in a domestic environment just can't be trusted. He's all elbows and knees, isn't he, Adam Driver? But um, yeah, back to what we were talking about. Really strong performances, I think. And um, pretty good chemistry between the two of them. I, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think I bought them as a couple. Um, the only thing, the only thing I would, would say slightly, and I think it might... I don't know whether casting them as a theater, as, a, as an established theatre director and reasonably high-profile actress necessarily would make this film as accessible to everyone that might want to watch it. Um, would that be a, a fair criticism, do you think? Oh, dude, yeah. Um, Welcome to yeah. Boundback World, though. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it, is, it is an issue. I mean, it's that issue, you know, you watch whatever you think about him. You watch Woody Allen films and you know that you're going to be in a certain... Um, a better example than Woody Allen, Whit Stillman. I really like Whit Stillman, but what you're going to be dealing with yeah. is sort of upper middle class, either college campus or sort of society folk going through their problems. And like, if you go back through the catalogue of Bound Back films, you've got uh, stuff like uh, Steve Sisu early on, uh, which I don't like very much. Squid and the Whale, certainly. Uh, the, the Jeff Bridges character is a philosophy professor, I think, there. Yeah, I like, I like Squid and the Whale. I haven't seen that many of his films in all honesty, but I did like well, Squid and the Whale. When his, it, so. his son's... Uh, quip to him is is describing something as kafkaesque fairly early on yeah <laughs> uh, he wrote the screenplay for fantastic mr fox which some people hated i really like because it was intellectual uh, greenberg which uh, again is good work but has that issue that you're surrounded by people who yeah i mean during the movie adam driver's character as he's going through what is seemingly a sort of downward spiral gets the macarthur genius grant which which yeah. gives him $650,000 obviously to fund his endeavors but like you know that's that you could buy I, I bought that more when it was Philip Seymour Hoffman getting the same grant in uh, Synecdoche New York but like when it's a dude who's like 35 years old I mean maybe that's how <laughs> how it went for Baumbach I don't know but Jesus it makes you feel terrible about yourself honestly from from that point yeah of view. and I, I think that's that not that that's not necessarily intentional but for me there's there was certain there were certain lines of it and don't get me wrong like overall I thought it was an incredible piece of work I did I think it I'd be surprised if it isn't sitting somewhere in my top 10 films of the year like I, I did like it that much but I said my slight gripes are um is that I just think there's certain lines of dialogue in it where you've got uh, Adam Driver's character talking about I've flown here at great expense and I can't afford this solicitor and I can't afford this lawyer and I can't afford this and I can't afford this and I was just like you fucking can like you absolutely can there are people out there going through divorces who genuinely cannot afford what you're saying but you can you're ca and those it was those those that was probably in my minor criticisms there's a few lines of like oh we can't afford this and we can't do this i'm just like that doesn't necessarily ring true to me because of who the two people were and as you say you've got this this genius grant with six hundred and fifty thousand dollars um and yeah it's almost like oh i'm such a it was almost like you pitied him because he was a struggling new york film director i'm like no <laughs> you don't have my pity for those reasons so yeah that for that yeah slightly it was slightly detaching i think i think i would have preferred the characters to have been in a more 
uh, not, not realistic isn't the wrong word because obviously some people do live this life but I think you see where I'm coming from yeah and I mean I think what we started with in terms of the parallels between Baumbach's own life and the events of the movie uh, maybe this doesn't then reflect that well when you start to feel like oh this is a bit indulgent and a bit um, self-sympathying when yes obviously terrible situation in this character's life but certain elements of his privilege go very much unchecked or, or, or unacknowledged which makes you think certain maybe maybe certain things about the director himself but um interestingly enough i think of adam driver and Noah Baumbach because of while we're young where i think it's in that movie where he plays a sort of a hip hipsterish kind of character who's floating about in new york and um it always stuck with me that he says this thing uh, uh, they uh, ben Stiller it is and Naomi Watts the older couple in that movie who are trying to like recapture their youth and they're having a conversation they've met him for the first time and then they can't remember something and they say oh let's look it up on our smartphones and he says let's not and his whole thing is like I don't look things up on smartphones so I, I kind of had that character in my head whilst I was watching this but yeah man I liked it I think I liked it less than some of the glowing gushing reviews that I've seen from certain corners because I think having said all that I've said and, and, you know, agreeing with sort of most of what you've said as well, I don't know that the film actually got down that deep into the bones of the sort of um, emotional weight of what was going on. Yes, I totally agree. The scene where they get into an argument and it gets very, very um, embittered is, is very well played and, and powerful. But I left the film feeling like maybe I hadn't learned as much about the emotional machinations of a divorce as I maybe hoped that I would. Yeah, that's, I guess, yeah, that's fair. I, th I, I can see, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. See, I liked, I see, I liked the fact that it didn't go too deep into the emotional side of it, because I think that, that for me would have possibly tipped it into overwrought territory. So I can see where you're coming from for sure. But for me, it wasn't so much of an issue. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if there's any way to to learn the emotional machinations of divorce until you go through one, I guess. But yeah, I yeah. Well, I you know, know. fingers crossed. Um, fingers crossed it, it will yeah, happen. Yeah, but... fingers crossed for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> but I would say, yeah. I mean, um, have you seen Mayowitz stories at this point? Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't. I'm going to find. I'm going to go and watch it, and then over the next couple of days, I need to right. catch up with. Did he direct Francis Ha as well? Was that uh, Bumba? That uh, Mistress America and Francis Ha, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's right. big gaps in my Bumba back catalogue. To be fair, Bumba catalogue. <laughs> hey. Um, yeah, there's some there's some gaps there for sure. So incredibly, I need, to, uh, I need to fill those up. Incredibly, Paul. He also wrote the screenplay for Madagascar Three: Europe's Most Wanted. It's a true story. Okay. It's a true story. <laughs> I I, I've just discovered. <laughs> but yeah, a good film, an accessible film, a film that is available right now on Netflix. And I think the kind of film that will be for a lot of people, um, you know, if watched in the right conditions or, or right relationship or right timing or whatever, uh, will be kind of a conversation starter as well, at least that. And I think for, for that reason, as well as a number that we've mentioned, uh, I would recommend this. Yeah, no, for me, I just thought it was, yeah, I think it's a fantastic piece of work. I would highly recommend this um, to anyone that hasn't seen it yet. But obviously, pick your, pick your time. Don't do this. Don't go, oh, we've just had an argument. Let's sit down and watch Marriage Story together because it should be called Divorce Story. So, yes, <laughs> it's not an easy watch at all times. Yeah. Double bill, get your nearest and dearest, double bill, Blue Valentine, and then Marriage Story. Oh, 
There you go. Yeah, that's that's your shout. Friday you night sorted. You're welcome. That's Valentine's Valentine sorted. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all got a bit down in the dumps over here. So what we need is to talk about some comedy, and that's exactly what we're going to do. The top five for this week is going to be top five comedy films of the entire year of 2019. Right after this. Right, so yeah, top five comedies of 2019. Um, we talked about what kind of qualifies as a comedy and what doesn't and before we, we came into the show and I think we mostly agreed um, and then didn't agree on some. So um, hey-ho, but we this is films that I think... I mean, where I've gone with this is, is, I guess, films to me that the comedy is an integral part of the film that made it work for me. So it might not be... There's one in particular that we, we I think we disagree on. But for me, that film wouldn't have worked without the comedy in it. I think it needed it. It needed it to be a success. So that's kind of where I've gone with these. Um, Pete, any any further thoughts on the selection process? No, or? no, I think that's fair comment. Yeah, um, the same. I've got one on the list that could be a bit contentious in terms of is it really a comedy? But just like you, I think it's got enough comedy content in it that's important to the structure of the thing and the sort of uh, heft of the thing that it got on this list. And, you know, not quite to the extent of the action movies list that we did just recently, uh, but I think that there was a little bit, at least from my side, a little bit of a lack of choice when it came to a really good comedy that came out in the last 12 months. So, I've done my best. Do you want to go first or shall I, Paul? Uh, you can go first because I normally go first. So go for it, Pete. Cool. What I've talked about not long ago, uh, my number five is Sword of Trust from director, writer, Lynn Shelton, uh, a director and a writer that I have followed and enjoyed for quite some time. Um, things like uh, Your Sister's Sister and uh, Touchy Feely and so on and so forth. Uh, in this one, we have a particularly strong performance from both... Um, uh, sorry, Michaela Watkins and um, I'm forgetting the name, Gillian Bell, that's it. Uh, Michaela Watkins and Gillian Bell play these two women who come into possession of a sword that could be incredibly historically important um, in terms of America's history in particular. They go to get the sword evaluated by a, a crotchety middle-aged man played by Mark Maron. It was a stretch. Um, and from there, they are set on a path of sort of... Um, comedic mishap as they need to go and make a sale to a group of fairly nasty, fairly uh, neo-Nazi leaning types um, in the middle of nowhere. This one is just, yeah, it's well written. It's genuinely funny. And Michaela Watkins was also in um, Runs a Marathon, whatever she was called, who ran the marathon. That one. I'm not. I can't. I haven't jumped to raid here because I've forgotten that name. The Julian Bell yeah. movie where she runs a marathon. Yeah, Michaela Watkins showed up as the sort of well-to-do woman who lived next door in that, and she's just an actress who sort of flies under the radar. And I really like her, and I think this is one of the best things I've seen her in, just because they work so well in tandem. And I guess that's why they they reteamed. Britney runs a marathon. They reteamed on on that movie as well. So yeah, in addition to that, I think it's one of Mark Maron's best performances. He's a guy who's sort of a bit marmite, I think, um, a, a bit like the Graham Norton thing. When I listen to uh, WTF the Marin podcast I tend to skip through the sort of 25 minutes that he dedicates to talking about his cats and like stuff that he's observed but um, he's a fantastic interviewer and that shows really good so yeah good people a good script uh, funny strong story um, or at least an engaging story for the time that it sticks about which is only an hour and 28 minutes sort of trust is my number five Paul what is your five 
Uh, my number five was probably one of the early pleasant surprises of the year for me. This was uh, Longshot, directed by Jonathan Levine, starring Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. Uh, journalist Fred Flasky, played by Seth Rogen, reunites with his childhood cousin Charlotte Field, who's now one of the most influential women in the world, and she prepares to make a run for the presidency. So it's kind of like this kind of... Like has he got well the term long shot is like has this has this sort of frumpy classic Seth well basically Seth Rogen he just plays Seth Rogen let's be at this point let's be honest would Seth Rogen have a shot with Charlie's Theron is basically the premise of the film um, and again I went into this not expecting great things to be honest and I would I still maintain that not all of the jokes land here but I think under the surface under the surface there was a surprisingly warm romance to be found and I think that the pair of them did have. Uh, surprisingly good chemistry together and I think uh, genuinely for me there was a lot more hits than misses in terms of the jokes and I came out of it having a a pretty good time with it to be fair Um, maybe that's against weight of expectation being low I haven't seen it twice yet I will be honest but um, I'd certainly be happy to watch it again have you seen this Pete I think I'm not sure we've talked about this one before but yeah man have you finished your review Yes. Uh, at number four for me is uh, the film Long Shot, <laughs> starring Charlize Theron and <laughs> Seth Rogen. Yeah, I totally agree with you, man. It was a surprise for me too. I mean, a surprise, I guess, in a way, because I think Charlize Theron is like smart and savvy and picks good projects, particularly now where she's got, you know, more power in the industry than she's ever had. And then Seth Rogen for, you know, uh, good or bad is a guy who is absolutely prolific when it comes to writing and producing stuff. And so to have those two people, such hardworking people attached to this project, I think gave me some confidence that it would be at least middling, at least reasonable, but it's better than that, isn't it? And like you said, it's a long shot about will he have a chance with this unattainably beautiful talented and intelligent woman but she's also a lot in a long shot situation because she's trying to get the presidency right so she's kind of a massive outsider for a position that would be previously unimaginable and you've got all that kind of um you know clash of two worlds fish out of water comedy that is played pretty well in terms of the fact that yeah like you said he is just seth rogan like he's stoned all the time he doesn't seem to have like his shit together and he is thrust into a world of sharply dressed people in important and powerful positions within the american administration i mean in itself it's kind of funny and i kind of think and maybe it's recency bias but i kind of think this would be right near the top of anything seth rogan's done to to date i yeah i I don't disagree to be honest i think it's yeah it's definitely up there with his with his stronger work for sure yeah i don't i don't know if he has a writer credit on this thing but you would imagine that someone like that has had i mean i think i've heard him say that he had input into at least you know uh lines that he was delivering how he would deliver them and and some sort of improvisational stuff so yeah it's really good it's a lot better than you might think it would be give it a chance if you haven't so far uh, as it says on the poster undeniably funny uh yeah long, long shot's really good and uh, it's my number four what is your number four paul uh, my number four is, I don't think many people got to see this because it was on quite a limited release. Uh, this was Thunder Road, directed by Jim Cummings, written by Jim Cummings and starring Jim Cummings, who is, to me, a, certainly a relative a relative newcomer anyway. Um, and this is a black, certainly a very black comedy uh, based around a police officer who faces a personal meltdown following a divorce and the death of his mother. Um, the Thunder Road in the title is relates to a Springsteen song, of which he is a huge fan. And I, if I remember rightly, he gives quite a weird rendition of it his mother's funeral um 
it's certainly uh, a very distinctive film, um, and I think marks out Jim Cummings as, as a director to watch. Um, how much you'll enjoy this, so I think, will hinge on how much you like dark black comedies, because it is an incredibly black comedy. There are moments that are very, very awkward in it, and Jim Cummings' character in this, the, the, the central character, is not always a likeable man. Um, but it's it's what it does with those awkward moments that it mines really, really well for comedy, and it's Jim, it's Jim Cummings' performance here that makes this... Um, makes this one of my favorite comedies of the year uh, so if you haven't caught up with thunder road yet you absolutely should and go into it knowing basically all the li- less than i've told you about it because it's worth going into not knowing much about this so if you get a chance to catch up with it definitely catch up with it it's great one for me then at my number three that i think more people will have seen it's also been out for the longest of any of the things that we could possibly pick from as it came out on january the 1st of 2019 it is the favorite from yorgos lanthimos and this is the one that i said maybe is a bit contentious because yeah strictly speaking it's a biography it's a drama it's a historical film and not per se a comedy but just when i thought which films have made me laugh either laugh out loud or just really entertained me in a way that was sort of higher-minded or clever or intricate or whatever it might be. Uh, The favourite just cropped up as one of those, so I had to put it on the list. Uh, Even, you know, things like Emma Stone getting pushed in a ditch uh, that stand out. You know, when I think back on comedy moments of the year, that is there. Uh, All of the tomato-throwing shenanigans and the absolutely mental performance from Olivia Coleman and the bunny rabbits and all the imagery that surrounds that stuff. Uh, Yeah, it's a movie that stuck with me. And like I said, it's been out longer and I've seen it longer ago than anything else I'm talking about and it's still made number three so yeah if you are one of the few who hasn't seen the favorite yet get on it uh Yorgos Lanthimos I mean once you've seen one of his films if you like it you'll want to go back and find all of the other ones um and I can't promise that they're all hilariously funny funny some of them are incredibly incredibly dark but uh really intelligent work and well worth your time and eyeballs that is my number three Paul what is your number three uh, my number three is Knives Out from Ryan Johnson. This was the controversial one, but as I said, for me, it, I mean, technically, I guess it's a whodunit or why done it, as I've read it, read it uh, described as in certain corners. Um, but for me, without the comedy here, without the eccentric family characters, and without the razor sharp comedic writing, Knives Out for me would have been quite dull. Um, as and, and I genuinely, I genuinely stand by that. So for me, it sits as certainly as a comedy. I think it's very, very, as I said, very, very sharply written. It's a very, very clever film anyway in terms of its, in terms of the way it structures the mystery, uh, the mystery that they go about solving. But Daniel Craig's performance is, is, everyone's performance is great here. Daniel Craig's accent is ridiculous. There are elements, there's certainly elements of farce in this film that I think really, really add something to it. And I think without the comedy, the film wouldn't have the character that it has. So therefore, for me. It is a comedy and it sits at number three. <laughs> it's totally fair enough. Uh, yeah, I think we've both been defensive enough about our number three picks, but both of them brilliant movies, uh, <laughs> both both The Favourite and Knives Out. Uh, at number two for me, and this could have, in, a, in another world, could have been my number one pick. This is Greener Grass. And this will be one that I think, yeah, again, not too many people maybe have caught up with yet, but when they do, you'll know exactly why I've put it on the list. I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's uh, Jocelyn DeBoer and Dawn Lueb who have collabed before on things like uh, Comedy Bang Bang and... Um, uh, funny or die stuff I, I believe uh, and here get to really do what they want to do with their first outing in full feature format and what they've done is created a kind of have you ever seen that show uh, Tim and Eric's awesome show great job 
Uh, no, unfortunately not. You, you, you're aware of those guys. Sounds like I should, but you know, yeah, I'm aware of Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim, right? So they do a show which is sort of like a nightmare version of uh, cable access TV, where people can do anything on a TV channel that's like number seven hundred on the on the uh, channel selector or whatever. So it's very, very weird and very, very out there. And what they did with that show is they kind of made. Uh, sort of dull, uh, run-of-the-mill, amateurish scenarios become nightmares. And it's kind of what happens in Greener Grass too, because on the face of it, we have a story about two uh, well-to-do sort of upper-middle-class women in America who are perennially competing with each other to supersede the achievements of the other. But then it's not handled in anything like a conventional way. It's really, really weird. I mean, both women, even though they are in their late 30s, perhaps 40, wear um, braces throughout and have sort of strange... Uh, looks to them throughout. Uh, One of them gifts the other one her baby in like the opening scene of the movie, which she then tries to get back for the rest of the movie. But asking for the (laughs) baby back is seen as breaking the social contract. It's kind of impolite to do a thing like that. No take backs. Uh, And then at the same time, you've got the the one woman who's given away her baby, just watching her entire life fall uh, fall apart around her ears and trying to just cling on to something sane and something that she can sort of claw back uh, normality from it, it's as you can tell from my bumbling attempts to explain this movie it's very very difficult to get across why it is <laughs> such a treat but it really is um, and I've seen this opinion expressed elsewhere I don't think I'm on my own but yeah it kind of kind of really special and one of those that you kind of have to see to believe to understand and to explain to somebody else uh, it, with any kind of accuracy my number two is greener grass what is your number two Paul? Uh, my number two is the favorite pete because we talked about it that it could be included and i immediately bumped something on my list to put the favorite onto it um i maintain that all of yorgos lanthimos's work is black comedy in my opinion and i find most of it quite funny and i think you are meant to i mean not to say that it's not pitch dark because it is at times um, and I would say the favourite firmly sits as an if anything if anything it's an absurdist film. I think I once I once very proud of this term. I described Yorgos Lanthimos's films as a theatre of the absurd, um, which again you know that's a good line. Come on, um, but yeah, it's it's very very yeah it's 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 meant to the favourite is definitely meant to meant to elicit laughs. It's definitely a black comedy in in terms of how it portrays these characters, just how manipulative these characters are, how malevolent they are, and yeah, it's just at times it's so over the top and so silly that you can't help but you can't help but laugh at it and yeah I said way back when I think I ended up seeing this last year quite a few months ahead of release in the end so it kind of wasn't at the top of my mind when I made this list so thank you for putting it back there um but yeah no I, I thought the favorite was absolutely superb I don't I need to watch it again I don't know why I haven't watched it again yet uh but yeah everything about the favorite for me worked I love Lanthimos as a director I think he's a fantastic talent so yeah the favorite sits at number two I'm just going to go ahead and be so bold as to say that we've got the same film at number one I've got a feeling we might have uh what have you got Pete I have a little film called Booksmart Paul yay <laughs> yes uh Booksmart from debuting feature director Olivia Wilde that will that we all know as a an actress of uh, some longevity at this point uh, this one yeah I mean what do we say I mean we've reviewed it on the show already obviously go back and check out the full review but it seems to me to be sort of a triumph on a number of levels it's a triumph because 
Who could have expected that Olivia Wilde would do something so accomplished first time out? Who could have expected that one of my favourite scenes of the entire year was in, is included in the movie? And I'm talking about the the sort of heartbreak swimming pool sequence set to Perfume Genius, yeah. which is just brilliant. <laughs> uh, who could have guessed that Caitlin Dever would be as good as she is here, having put in such great performances from as far back as like Short Term 12, but like re- really peaking here or sort of an early career peak for Caitlin Dever. Uh, Beanie Fe- Feldstein, who is her co-star, also fantastic. I mean, just performances. The script is great. The way it's filmed is great. So many jokes here. Billy I mean, Lord, Billy Lord here. All of all of the sub characters, all of the sub characters are just is so well written in this. Like just for me, and we'll take this one together because it's both our number one. But for me, it just it, Booksmart for me doesn't put a foot wrong. I've seen it three times now, I think, and it just doesn't put a foot wrong for me. Like maintains its high laugh rate. I think it's one of the first. It's one of the one of the only comedies of the year. I can honestly say that when I sat in the cinema I didn't just smirk all the way through this I was laughing loudly from beginning to end I just thought I just thought it was an incredible achievement like again and it, it a lot of people said oh it's kind of genre flip super bad and I, I can see where they're coming from but for me it's so much more than that I think there's there's a lot more I think that's not giving it enough praise to be honest in terms of some of the issues that it some of the issues that it, it raises yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think Superbad uh, would even argue, the people who made that movie would not really argue with this, but I don't think Superbad has the depth that Bo- Booksmart does. Um, no, I don't think it does. I don't either, think though. it even really tries to. I mean, the depth that you get in, in Superbad is the sort of depth of feeling between the central characters and sort of growing friendship and it's relatable and it reminds you of your own time at school. But like what you get between the two leads in this, as you're touching on, you know, uh, goes a little bit further, I think. Um, goes a little bit further into, into some different areas as well and also touches on sort of in a bit more detail some of the characters that circulate around them in their high school environment and and not just to sort of throw away ciphers or like stereotypes but also gives a little bit of time to those other characters so that's to the film's credit for sure man and like this was one of those yeah I I thought it would be a good time at the cinema but really shot up to some something like you know top 10 or 20 films of the year for me yeah this this will be sitting very near the top I'll be honest this that's this it's a lock-in for me in terms of films of the year it's definitely going to be it's definitely going to be top five I can I can give you a little spoiler now but yeah again I, I took my time to see it as well at the cinema I didn't see it when it came out and then sort of was just reading more and more positive buzz and I was just like oh no actually and yeah I, I wish I'd given it a chance I mean I do I did get to see it at the cinema so it's not like I missed it but yeah it's the kind of thing I wish I'd given it a chance and sort of jumped in jumped on board opening night really but yeah I think it marks out um Olivia Wilde as a director as a director to watch for sure and all of the cast here as you say were great just said I for me it just doesn't put a foot wrong I think it's nigh, nigh on perfect comedy I absolutely love it yeah and a little bit of um you know link up on things but I talked about at the time we talked about Booksmart that Caitlin Dever is so good in Unbelievable, that TV miniseries um, that's available now, I think on, on Netflix. And then it's reminded me that in that she stars alongside, amongst other people, uh, Merritt Weaver. And then, of course, Merritt Weaver plays Scarlett Johansson's sister in Marriage Story. And we forgot to talk about her at all when we did their review today. But another really good performance in, in the movie that we discussed for the feature. So, yeah, it all ties together in the end. And Booksmart ties up this list really well because I think... It's just a, a kind of a delight. And and you just feel like so good for everybody involved as well because it's such a 
you know, the, yeah. we, we we opened up today, it feels like, this show talking about a sort of mean-spirited, as you said, filmmaker in Michael Bay and what he's just plopped out into the digital world recently. <laughs> uh, and we finish it by talking about a film made from a place of love that does so many things right. So we've come full circle and, you know, it's nice to go out like that at Christmas time. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, uh, but that brings us... Oh, oh sorry, Paul. I was just going to tack on the end. Was there anything that just narrowly missed your top five? Uh, Little Monsters, um, although was lumpy in parts, uh, overall I think there were some really good set pieces in it. And if uh, scenes of the year, if we do manage to do scenes of the year, although we are rapidly running out of time, there is a scene in, there's a Darth Vader themed set piece in Little Monsters that would certainly make my scenes of the year. Um, so that has certainly had its moments. Uh, but yeah, that's probably the only one that narrowly missed out, I think. Yeah, we'll try and get it done. It's a good good one, I think. I, I wanted to give a little bit of love to a couple that haven't made our list, but Fighting With My Family was pretty good. That was good, actually. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Always be my maybe, which is one of those Netflix comedies that you could easily just give a pass to, is worth the time. Ali Wong's really good in it. Ali Wong's a stand-up comic that you might have seen. She's got her specials on Netflix as well. Uh, it didn't entirely work, which is a shame. But we both got some, I think, laughs from the Between Two Ferns movie that's obviously on Netflix as well. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we've done a top five comedies of the year in a year where Christopher Morris released a feature film, and it hasn't made either list. And I haven't seen oh, it. Oh right, yet, fair, fair, fair enough. It yeah. hasn't made my list, and it and it wasn't really close, which is a shame. There's stuff in it that's worthwhile. It's just a shame it maybe it wasn't better. And also, there's a there's a movie called Wine Country on Netflix, which I think was unfairly criticised, and I think is actually quite good. So uh, worth checking out if you're a comedy fan as well. But yeah, good list, uh, enjoyable, and um, I'm glad we've come far far away from Michael Bay on this episode. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But that pretty much brings us to the end of the episode. Um, we'll be back next week at some point with films of 2019 possibly scenes of 2019 uh certainly i'll be talking about star wars and people will be unsurprised to learn hopefully it'll be slightly more positive than the last time we did a feature review of star wars in the show when i was quite inebriated um so yeah in the meantime get in touch with us let us know what you think of the top five comedies of the year let us know if you like six underground and we will block you from social media forever um and yeah find us on social media at stranger cinema on twitter stranger in the cinema on the other social medias so yeah thanks for listening and merry christmas merry christmas Shut up and sit down.